Your diabetic patient with renal insufficiency presents with abdominal pain. The imaging test of choice is a CT with contrast. Do you proceed with the test? What can you do to help protect this patient's kidneys from the impending contrast load? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and this is the Clinician's Roundtable. Our guest is Dr. Michael Rudnick, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania uh, Medical School in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Rudnick. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Lee. How can we help to protect our patients with renal insufficiency who need to have a contrast study? Oh, that's a great question. Let me first start out by saying that unlike some other forms of acute kidney injury, we know when the toxic exposure of dye is going to occur. You know, in comparison, let's say um, somebody's in a, um, a serious accident where they develop rhabdomyolysis. I mean, that's an unpredictable kind of thing. Somebody goes to surgery or has a cardiac event where they uh, become ischemic and they develop acute kidney injury, that's also kind of unpredictable. So contrast is actually unique in the sense that we know exactly when it's going to be administered, and that lends itself to using prophylactic tools. We spoke, I think, on a previous episode about who's at risk for this, and uh, in your introduction, you certainly hit it right on the head. I mean, patients with renal insufficiency are at risk, and the point that I just want to expand on is that if you have renal insufficiency and diabetes, your risk dramatically increases. But what's interesting is that diabetes by itself without renal insufficiency is not really an increased risk. So the diabetics are only acts as a risk factor in the presence of renal insufficiency, not with normal renal function. So there are a number of steps that we can take. Some of them are related to the procedure itself. Some of them are not related to the procedure to try and prevent this from occurring. Let's talk about just some of the procedural things that one can do to prevent this from occurring. One, of course, is to use the smallest amount of contrast media possible. Now, people often say, well, you know, is there a value or an, an amount of contrast that I can give that if I stay below, I won't have this, and if I go above, you know, I have a risk of having it. It'd be nice if it was that simple, right. but it's not. And let me give you an example. You could take somebody who has uh, pretty good kidneys, no history of diabetes, and give them 500 mLs, which is a huge amount, or maybe 400 mLs of contrast, and they're not going to develop acute renal failure. You can take an insulin-dependent diabetic, a type 1 diabetic, with a creatinine of 5, which is you know, pretty high, and you can give them 30 mLs of contrast, and they will develop the renal failure. Mm. But there are formula people have proposed that you know, do seem to suggest that if you can stay below the value of the volume predicted by the formula, the formula is based on, you know, of course, the serum creatinine and what volume you should give, that you have less risk of developing acute renal failure than if you go above it. To my mind, you know, I'm not sure the value of that. I think the value is just to use the least amount of contrast you can. Just because you're below the level by the formula doesn't mean that you have license to really use more. You just use the absolute minimum necessary to get the clinical job done. And that should be likely communicated by the ordering physician to the radiology center or hospital? Well, the radiologist or the uh, cardiologist who's doing the study, you know, are well aware of that. And if there's what's communicated to them and, and they should be aware before they start that they've got a high-risk patient, they should certainly do that. So I want to then tell you about another procedure thing, which is the choice of contrast. Compared to the 1970s and the 1960s, contrast agents in the 1980s and, and subsequently are a little bit different physiochemically. I mean, these contrast agents are all composed of these benzene rings that each contain three iodine atoms, but the osmolality, the number of particles in solution, 
has dramatically decreased with modern-day contrast agents compared to contrast agents in the 1960s and 1970s. The modern-day contrast agents are often referred to in literature as low-osmolar contrast media or non-ionic contrast media in contrast to the earlier contrast media, which is high-osmolar ionic, which basically are historical right now. But they weren't historical, you know, at the end of the 1970s or 1980s. And in the 1980s, when these newer agents came out, they were actually much more costly than the older agents, and there was a lot of debate. And I was the lead author of actually a study that recruited 1,200 patients from across the United States and was the initial study to definitively show that these newer agents cause less nephrotoxicity than the older agents. Probably a cost-effective in that sense. Probably, but we never did that analysis, but you know, it's a good point. The reason I tell you about this is that in the past decade, there's been a, yet a third generation of contrast agents which has a slightly different physical configuration. But the end result is the number of particles has been able to be reduced even further, yet still deliver the same amount of iodine. And those are called isoosmolar contrast agents, and they have the same osmolality as normal plasma. Needless to say, they are significantly more expensive. But the uh, idea was that if the low osmolar contrasts were less toxic than the high osmolar contrast, then maybe these isoosmolar contrasts, which have osmolalities that are even lower, are less toxic than the low osmolar contrast. And the initial study that was done looking at this in Sweden that was published in the New Journal of Medicine called the Nephric study actually showed a dramatic benefit. And for years, people were preferentially using this isoosmolar contrast. Other manufacturers of low osmolar contrast have designed other studies comparing their product with the, it's only one isoosmolar contrast, it's called uh, Visipake, and compared their product with that. And the results have not been consistently that Visipake uh, is less toxic than the others. In some cases, the toxicity is about the same. But, so, you know, this is an area of controversy. Again, the radiologists and the cardiologists should be familiar with this in terms of their selection. I think that in many cases, they may choose to go with a, either a low osmolar contrast that's been shown to have a low incidence of toxicity or to go with the more expensive isoosmolar contrast. But in any case, they do try and be selective in the contrast media they use in the hopes of preventing this. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing how to protect the kidneys from contrast loads with Dr. Michael Rudnick from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Rudnick, in addition to dose and type of contrast, I imagine hydration has to play a key role. That's right, Lee. Actually, the uh, single greatest unanimity of what we can do to try and prevent this is hydration. And the idea here is pretty simple. We understand that the most likely mechanism of renal failure in these patients is somehow the contrast agents cause a, lack, a decreased blood flow to the kidney and makes them susceptible to injury. And we know that in animal models, if they are salt depleted, this risk of injury is dramatically increased. So for years now, we have used various forms of hydration. And we've seen an evolution in this. Uh, we went from using half normal saline at a rate of around 1 cc per kilogram per hour for 24 hours, 12 before and 12 after, to much shorter periods of hydration. And the reason for that transition is, as you're well aware, even today, arteriograms and cardiac catheterizations are being done in increasing numbers as outpatients. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult with third-party payers to have somebody in the hospital 24 hours, even if they are at risk, 
for hydration. And even if third-party payers would be willing to do that, the patients are not willing to do that. Right. So by default, have begun to give fluids for a few hours, uh, you know, four to six hours before, four to six hours afterward, without any real proof that that's as good or not as good as the longer periods of hydration. Then what happened is, um, in just more recently in the last few years, with an article that appeared in JAMA by a guy by the name of Greg Merton, he went ahead and randomized his patients to receive uh, sodium bicarbonate at a concentration where the sodium in the fluid would be 150 milliequivalents, very similar to the way normal saline would be, versus normal saline. And he showed that if you gave the sodium bicarbonate, that uh, there was even a lower incidence of acute renal failure compared to if you gave the sodium chloride. And the nice thing about his study is that he gave the sodium bicarbonate at a dose of 3 cc's per kilogram per hour for the, just the first hour. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to come in a long time ahead of time. Then they continued it for, uh, I think, four to six hours you know, after yeah, the, the study. The, the, um, now, no one quite knows for sure why this works or has, you know, may work. I think it would be more accurate. It has to do with uh, the alkalinization may decrease the formation of something called oxygen-free radicals, which, you know, prove to be toxic to the tissues of the kidney. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is, and I, and I just want to caution you and your listeners, is that like many things in uh, life, you know, the first study or two looked so good, it's almost hard to believe that it's true. And then as additional studies are done, you realize that it's not true. But there are now at least uh, six to 10 other studies that are ongoing or that have just been completed comparing sodium bicarbonate to sodium chloride. Although I could be wrong on this, I would not be surprised at all if some of these studies could not show a uh, benefit, leaving, again, the question of what is the ideal hydration. So some kind of hydration, maybe sodium bicarbonate, uh, could be better than normal saline, but uh, the jury's still out. The jury is still out. There are other things that have been tried to prevent, you know, contrast to property, and some of them have proven that they just don't work. Mm-hmm. For example, mannitol has been shown historically not to work. There is something called uh, phenoldopam, which is a dopamine-type drug that dilates the arteries in the kidney. That doesn't work. The atrial natriuretic factor, that doesn't work. But one of the more simpler things that has been suggested to be effective is something called N-acetylcysteine, or the shorthand uh, version mucumist. of a snack. Uh-huh. And N-acetylcysteine is, the, you know, the trade name is mucamist. And so it's, people know it for loosening secretions in the bronchial tree. And there was an article uh, that appeared in the, uh, I guess, just in the, around 2000, 2001, by a professor, Teppel, in the New England Journal of Medicine, where he took patients who were at risk for developing contrast nephropathy, and one group got placebo, and the other group got this acetylcysteine as a tablet, uh, 600 milligrams twice a day, starting the day before, and then two more times the day of the study, and there was a dramatic reduction. It went like from, there's a 25% incidence of acute renal failure in the group that got the placebo versus a 3% incidence in the group that got the contrast, that got the acetylcysteine. Mm -hmm. So people went um, pretty wild about this, you know, I mean, because it was uh, such a dramatic improvement, number one. Uh, Number two, it was really... Very, it's very inexpensive. You know, it's about $17 for four doses. Number three, there are, when you take it orally, there's almost no side effects other than, in this country, we don't have it in a pill. So it's given as a liquid, and it's got a very pungent smell and taste to it. So it's usually mixed with syrup, like Coke syrup or orange juice, etc. Other than that, there's there's not much risk to it. Now, subsequently, 
there, you know, despite the dramatic first report on this, over the next uh, five to, you know, eight years, there have been another 20 studies that have come out, many of them not showing a benefit. And when you have studies, some showing a benefit, some not showing a benefit, they do the statistical analysis called a meta-analysis. And the most recent meta-analysis do raise the question of whether there's any effect. That, that hasn't stopped it being used because it's such a low-risk thing, and since the jury's out on it, many physicians still use uh, acetylcysteine. Well, I want to thank Dr. Michael Rodnick, who has been our guest, as we've been discussing ways to prevent contrast-induced nephropathy. He's pointed out to us that the dose and the type of contrast is important. Hydration is critically important. And then there are several agents that have been tried and have been shown not to be effective. And acetylcysteine, because it is benign and might be effective, is one that we are still using fairly widely. This is Dr. Lee Friedman, your host of the Clinician's Roundtable. You've been listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.